Okay, time for the, the, the adult lesson this morning. And we're looking at what does the Lord require of us as we continue our look at Micah chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Micah chapter 6. And we'll read verses 6 to 8 again this morning. Uh, and we'll see what the Lord has for us as we seek to understand this relationship that we have with Him. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. It says there, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Let's uh, go to him in prayer and commit this time. Father in heaven, we do once again come before your majestic throne, um, seeking to learn more, seeking to understand more. Father, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be open to this truth that you will uh, share with us now. And I pray that you would use me to that end. Father, I pray that, uh, that your spirit would be teaching us all of your ways and that we would come away from this particular time uh, with our hearts closer to you and seeking to live more like you in this world. We do thank you once again for your precious word that we can trust with our hearts and all of our minds. Indeed, we have trust with our eternal souls. So bless us now as we seek to learn more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we look at uh, this passage again this morning, we are reminded, uh, first of all, what God does not want. God does not want uh, people who are hypocritical. He does not want uh, people who are pretentious or people who um, are trying to abuse a system that he put in place. And the question starts off, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? So the, the question we're looking at ultimately is, how am I able to come before this, uh, this uh, eternal king, before this uh, creator of the universe, and for him to accept me? In, in what way would, does he want me to come before him? In what frame of mind? In what, where, where should my heart be? What should my attitude be when I come before him that's acceptable? And he said what he doesn't want. He doesn't want a person to come before him, uh, you know, uh, having sinned, and then uh, just, come on, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a goat, or, or, or I'll give you a sacrifice to um to make up for it in other words he does not want our our riches and our wealth to be a uh, an avenue for us to sin he wants he says what's good and what's what we've been looking at the last uh, last week and we looked last week at um uh, living justly uh, so i'll just read again verse 8 he has showed thee o man what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? That's what he wants from us. So uh, we're looking, or last week we looked at the concept of justice. Well, doing justly according to the Bible, doing justly is, uh, is just that. It's a doing word. It's a verb that is directed by decisions and choices in our lives to do what is right Instead of doing what is wrong, doing justly has at its foundation the justice of God. It's not a man-made justice which changes and morphs with society and culture, uh, but it's a, a justice and a, a righteousness that is fixed. And one thing that makes us different to most of the people in the world is that we believe in, in an absolute uh, right and wrong. We believe that the, the, what was right or what is right today has always been right and what is wrong today has always been wrong because God who made the laws, who gave us what was right and wrong, um, does not change himself. Um, this world has a different concept of right and wrong. This world believes that depending on, on what the culture is like and what the history is like and, and whatever, whatever your background is, that may change from time to time. But in God's eyes, right is right and wrong is wrong and it has always been that way. And our um, uh, obligation here, man's obligation, is to understand what God says is right and what God says is wrong and seek to adjust our lives to his standard, not adjust him to our standard, which is what most people do in this world. They create their standard, 
they they choose depending on how they've been brought up or how their culture is or whatever it is because they they're in love with their own culture and they're in love with their own obviously their own um, upbringing. Um, and then what they do is they create a god or they have a god that they create to match what they think is right and wrong. But the Bible says, and the Bible is the standard by which we are to judge our own lives and conform ourselves to what God tells us is right and wrong. So doing justly, doing what is right, has at its foundation the justice of God. And the Bible tells us that the justice of God means that every sin, which is essentially a crime, Okay, against the order of God will be judged. Will be uh, will be judged accordingly. It also understands that that God is also a perfectly just God. God can't just let sin go. He can't let murderers and adulterers and liars and fornicators and and all these different things that people do. He can't just let those go. He has to judge. Otherwise, um, he wouldn't be a just God at all. But the reason that God gives laws and commands is for the good of mankind. You see, this just uh, king and this just judge also gives laws that he has given to us for, the, for our good. And ultimately, he does that because he loves us. So someone, if you understand what, your, um, uh, what the justice of God is and you understand why he gave us laws... Um, if you embrace those truths in your life, then you will seek to do justice in your own life. That you will seek to live justly, as, uh, as the scripture tells us here. Doing justly means wanting good for other people. It doesn't just mean that I'm going to do what's right. It means that we seek justice for other people as well. And, and we looked at the example of how God um, does not want people to oppress other people. He wants people to do right to other people. So living justly is not some ethereal thing or something that we just, uh, it's a concept in our mind. No, justice is actually living these things. It's making choices day by day. And first and foremost is actually we conform ourselves to God's standard. But second of all is that we seek justice for those people who are around us and we do just towards them. So justice requires us to think about uh, doing what is right and judging what is right and what is wrong and applying it to ourselves first. And we seek and we want justice for other people as well. We don't want them to be unjustly treated because um, God says he does not want people to be oppressed. He doesn't want people to be taken advantage of. He wants all people in the world to treat each other with love and mercy. But try, the problem that we have is trying to live justly in a fallen state or in a fallen world is difficult. And the Bible teaches that it's as hard as we might try and regardless of how much we even may want to live justly, we always fall short. Thus man is stuck in the position of being unjust as a, as a being before God. Unable to keep God's commandments and failing to actually be just towards other people as well. I'm sure if you look back at your own life, <clears throat> you could think of many occasions where you didn't treat other people the way you would have been wanting to be treated yourself. I'm sure that if you go back and look at your own life, that you have failings and sins in your own life that you realize means that you are not perfect either. So the Bible says that every person is a sinner as a result of our fallen state. But there's good news. There's good news because even though a person may stand unjust or unrighteous in, in front of God, despite the shortcomings that we have, the Bible says that God is rich in mercy. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll read verses 4 to 7, because this is an important concept to understand. That regardless of our shortcomings, regardless of our imperfections and our sinfulness, God says this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, 
hath quickened us, that means made us alive, together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. How wonderful is God's mercy to us. Despite our shortcomings, despite our sinfulness and rebellion towards him, the Bible says because of his great love wherewith he loved us, he is rich in mercy toward us. You know, he, he never needed us. He still doesn't need us. We were the ones who rebelled and sinned against him. We were the ones who turned away from him and said, we're going to live our own lives. We don't need you. And yet... He showed us abundant mercy by sending his only begotten son to save us, to come to this world, to rescue us from our own selves and our own shortcomings and sin. And the Bible says that he paid the penalty that we should have paid in the first place by dying on that cross for our sake. Now, when I look at examples of God's love, obviously Jesus is the greatest manifestation, the greatest example of what mercy is. But today, as we, as we think about our mothers, you know what? We have another lovely example of what mercy is uh, in our mothers. Mercy is, you know, essentially not holding grudges or judging someone or uh, meeting out the penalty uh, for someone who's done wrong to you. It chooses not to treat someone just according to their failings because of love. And because of their love for their children, mothers put up with a great deal uh, from them, uh, from their children. Uh, despite their children not being perfect, mothers always seek the best for their children and to do good uh, to them at great cost to themselves. <clears throat> this is a good illustration of mercy because not every child is perfect. In fact, no children are perfect. Uh, but mothers continue to uh, sh show love and protection and they continue to give of themselves for the the good of their children uh, and they are consistent in that now i won't say that all mothers are perfect because obviously not there are none of us that are perfect but mothers in general are a good illustration of what we call mercy because they don't just look at their children and treat them according to their failings they continue to show mercy and love toward them because that overcomes those weaknesses and faults and it's a good illustration. If you want, to, if you want a, a down-to-earth illustration, uh, apart from Jesus, who is our perfect illustration of a day-to-day -day way in which God deals with us, mothers are probably a fantastic illustration. God always wants our good. He always seeks uh, to bless us. Despite our failings towards him, God loves us with a love that continues to allow him to, to shed mercy uh, upon us. So mothers, thank you for being that example to us. So the definition of mercy, <clears throat> I found in that one dictionary says, the mercy can be considered compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone uh, whom <clears throat> it is within one's power to punish or harm. So even though you have the power to punish or, or harm someone as a result of their, um, uh, of their wrongs toward you, you show instead compassion and forgiveness. And some of those synonyms for mercy can also be used in the same way. Pity, compassion, clemency, grace, and charity are also can be used uh, in similar ways. The Bible tells us that God is the ultimate source of mercy. He is, by definition, the source of what mercy is all about. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. So the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. And that is how we should uh, be living. That is the goal, that we should be sitting ourselves. We should be um, gracious, merciful, very, very slow to get angry, and have plenty of mercy. The Bible tells us that God is very, very merciful. And I'd like us to have a look at uh, an example of that. <clears throat> if you turn to Lamentations, Lamentation, that's after Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, the prophet. And we're looking at chapters 3, verses 22 and 23 this morning. We're going to look at an example, just a very a brief example of 
how God has revealed himself to be merciful. <clears throat> Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. Now this is the, the prophet Jeremiah writing <clears throat> at a particular time when Israel was under the judgment of God because of their utter sinfulness <clears throat> and disobedience towards him. It says there, it is of the Lord's mercies, in verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. What a, what a fantastic um, uh, couple of verses there regarding God's character. God's mercies and compassions, they never fail. They are new every morning. If you ever go through a time in your life where you feel uh, that you've just failed and that you're, you're not doing well and that there's every reason for God to discard you, well, uh, uh, look at these verses and remind yourself that God's mercies and compassions are new every morning. There's not a day that goes by that he doesn't want to give you and show you mercy and grace. You know, when, uh, when these words were penned by the... Uh, prophet as i've mentioned the israel had come under the the judgment or condemnation of god because they had turned away from him uh, as we've seen in uh, on wednesday evenings as in our look at judges uh, israel just turned away from god time after time after time whenever whenever they would uh, they had an opportunity to to fall and to start worshiping other gods and to do things they weren't supposed to be doing they just immediately just ran off in that direction and God continually judges them draws them back to him and then when they get into a big comfortable position again they turned away from him once again and in, unfortunately at this particular time uh, Israel was under the judgment of God because they had done just that they had worshipped other gods they had done things they weren't supposed to be doing their sin had reached the point where God could not just let it go and if you want to look at it to the um, to the extent of uh, if you want to look at it and compare it to what a mother might have to do, you know, it's it, the, the children have run amok. The children have run amok and, and they're destroying the house. And a mother, a mother sometimes has to discipline her children and, uh, and put them to the side and say, hey, stop now. And this is what God was doing with Israel. They had got to the stage where they had rebelled so much that they would have even destroyed themselves. and They, they would have lost God completely. But despite their harsh judgment, despite the judgment that had fallen upon them, <clears throat> and God had allowed another nation, was allowing another nation to come and judge them, Jeremiah understood, even though he was in the middle of it, the mercy of God as well. And if Israel is a good example of what people are generally like, and they are, Israel is a good example of what people are normally like, then God's mercy is extended toward the whole world over many thousands of years. And he continues to show us mercy. I mean, consider at this particular time. That some pe I've heard some people say that this COVID-19 times are God's judgment upon the world. <clears throat> I probably tend to see it more that we're reaping or the world is reaping what we've sown more than anything else. But if these times are a judgment of God upon the world, um, because most of the world doesn't believe in God and, and continues to do whatever they want to do, um, then still... The judgment of God, he's incredibly merciful, if you look at it. He's, this God is incredibly merciful. The truth is, he could have wiped us out for the injustices that, he, that, that exist in this world and that have existed over the thousands of years. The sins and iniquities that men have perpetrated towards each other and the, and the sins that, that, that continue to mount with each passing day. I mean, if any of us... We're in God's position. I'm sure that there probably wouldn't be a world at this particular point. You see, he could have simply snapped his fingers and we, may have, we could be destroyed in a moment. But he hasn't. And the question you have to ask yourself is, why? Why hasn't God destroyed the world yet? Well, the Bible tells us why he hasn't destroyed it yet. He brought it into existence in a very short period of time. And he could wipe it out in a very short period of time because he has the power to do it, but he doesn't. He continues to be patient, to be kind. Jesus taught that God is merciful. 
and Jesus called on people, when Jesus called on people to be merciful, he told them, now I want you to be merciful. And the type of mercy I want you to exhibit towards each other is the type of mercy that God is exhibiting toward you. I want you to look at him as your example. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Just as we look at an example of how Jesus told us that the type of mercy that we are to exhibit. And look at the amazing example that he gave, which is his own father. You know, a lot of people are pointing the finger at God and saying, Oh God, you know, how can you allow all these things to go on? You know, last time I checked, we had a free will. God allows us to do to 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 live within our, within our um our own choosing. He may set boundaries for us to not go beyond, because if we I suppose if we could uh, really exhibit the true nature of our fallen state, then things may be a lot worse than they are today. But God is always merciful. And if we look at the number of people who actually believe in God and have put their faith in Jesus as their saviour, that number is quite small in this world. We can't even imagine that it would be 10% of people in this world who actually trust in God and follow what he says. Most people don't even bother to read their Bibles if they've even got them. <clears throat> Yet God is merciful. Look at Matthew 5.43. It says, You have heard that it has been said, this is Jesus speaking to the people in his time. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Okay, now that's, that's probably the motto that most people uh, live by today. Verse 44 says, But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Look at verse 45. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Now what do we learn from that? We learn that God is merciful God. Very patient. He continues to, to bless both the good and the evil. He doesn't wipe away the evil. He doesn't just get rid of them and annihilate them. The, the Bible tells us that God is a patient God, merciful. He wants people to repent. He wants people to understand how merciful and loving and just he is. But he gives us time to even do that. So have a look at what Jesus expects of us. He's saying, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Is that hard? Yes, you bet it's hard. That's very hard to do. That is something that's not in our natural, nat in our natural uh, or in our nature to do. And if that's hard, then Jesus says, well, consider what God is doing toward you. Because that's what he continues to do for you. He continues to love you. He continues to bless you. He continues to do good to you. And Jesus, he sent his son into this world uh, to save us, and who, can, who prayed for us. And we persecuted him. When Jesus walked the earth, he was the perfect character of God. He was the perfect demonstration of God's mercy towards people. Jesus, the Son of God, is not different in character to God the Father. They're exactly the same in character. Jesus demonstrated perfectly what God's character was really like. And he showed mercy to people everywhere. Mercy to people who we would find it very difficult to show mercy to. Let me share some examples with you. John chapter 8, verse 3. Look at John chapter 8, verse 3, and we'll read to verses 11. Verse 11. There was a particular woman who'd been caught in adultery by a certain number of men called the Pharisees. These people were meant to be very, very righteous people, and they knew the law of God. That This woman had been caught in adultery. And they brought her before Jesus, and they were ready to stone her. And it tells in John 8, verses, verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman, taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. 
Now Moses and the law commanded us that we should be that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger right on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. That's mercy. That's mercy. That's, that's the, a perfect definition of mercy. Because Jesus could have said, Yes, she's caught in the sin. Stone her and, and, um, and, and deal with it. But instead what he did was he not only showed her mercy... But he helped the other men who were ready to cast the stones, who were ready to to perform the judgment on on her, to realize that they were sinners themselves. Not only did he teach them a lesson, but he teaches us the same lesson as well today. You know, we're very quick at getting ready to cast the stones at each other when we see someone else doing something wrong. But we do well to remind ourselves that we aren't perfect either. Even after we got saved, we're not perfect. And so our job is not to condemn and cast a stone. Our job is to see what he said at the end. He said, go and sin no more. Our job is to encourage each other. Our job is to, to spur one another, to edify one another. And if we have to rebuke, we'll rebuke because rebuking is, is fine. But the whole purpose of this, of this whole thing, the whole purpose of our, of our relationship to other people, now that we know the truth, is to help them as well. Mercy doesn't mean that you just let things go and, and oh, it's all fine, don't worry about it, it's not, not nothing. No, no, sin is never, it's nothing. Sin is, is very, very bad. Sin is evil. And we should avoid it at all costs. Mercy doesn't excuse it. But mercy gives room to overcome it. Mercy gives room to repent. Mercy gives room for hope. And that's what Jesus always showed in his life towards other people. Look at another example. Turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39. And we'll read to verse 43. In our second example here, <clears throat> Jesus is being crucified between two thieves. And they did this. For a reason. It was even though Jesus had lived a perfect life and, and really they had nothing really to condemn him of, they, they wanted to put him between two thieves to, to align him or identify him as a, criminal, as a normal criminal. Okay, So they hung him between two thieves. And Luke 23 verse 39 says, And one of the malefactors, so that he had one on each side, they were both thieves. And one of the malefactors, which is uh, the thief or the, uh, or the lawbreaker, which was hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. So one on one side said, Well, if you're really the Christ, hurry up and get us down from this cross. But the other answering rebuked him. So they're both hung on a cross. These guys are nailed up there, I think with Jesus, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly. He's saying that we deserve what, what we're getting over here. Don't you, don't you have any fear of God at all? You're about to die. We, we, we deserve what we're getting here. We are lawbreakers. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man had done nothing amiss. So he actually says, this, this guy who's with us, he didn't deserve to be up here. He's done nothing wrong. 
In verse 42, it seems that within his own heart, he's come to believe in Jesus. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, in verse 42, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. What does it take for a person to be saved? It takes simply someone to believe that Jesus is Lord and to trust him. And that's what a dying thief on a cross managed to do and he was saved. And for all those and for anyone who may think in their mind that you need to be baptized to be saved in order to be saved, well, I don't see how this fellow is getting baptized at all before he gets saved. He died up there with Christ and Christ promised him to be with him in his paradise. And let's take it a step further. Look at Luke 23. Go back a little bit with me to verse 33 and 34. Now, mercy, you know, when something, someone's done something wrong to you and you've had a bit of a time to cool down after you've, you know, you've blown your top and you've, you know, you've had a time to think about it and you've, and you've you had a time to digest it and, and you've slowly, you know, working off that, uh, that anger that uh, when someone's done something so bad to you, um, and you're waiting for them maybe to, to ask for forgiveness from you, I want you to consider the mercy that Jesus showed. Have a listen to the mercy that Jesus has towards those who are in the act of killing him, in the midst of their sin. Luke 23:33 says, And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Now they parted his raiment and cast lots. They took his clothes and they, they gambled them. When did he ask for forgiveness for them? Before that. When did he ask for forgiveness? While they were crucifying him. While he was hanging on a, on a cross, having been nailed there between two thieves, not having done anything wrong. Now, is that mercy? Yes, that's mercy. That's mercy. That's a, that's a type of mercy that we struggle to even understand. Because if someone's in the middle of doing something wrong to me, it's hard to, to exhibit mercy. But this is the type of mercy that God has toward mankind. That's the type of mercy that Jesus demonstrated throughout his whole life. You can look, I could have given you so many more examples. I mean, you can think of Peter who denied him three times and said, I don't even know the guy. Jesus not only forgave him, but restored him. Showed amazing mercy. There is mercy upon mercy. Uh, unfortunately, his own disciples struggled to understand this concept of mercy. And if you go back to Luke chapter 9, verse 52, there's an interesting example there of how they just didn't quite get it. He was teaching them about mercy and about love and forgiveness, and they just did not quite get it when he sent them out. To, um, uh, to declare that the kingdom of God had arrived on the earth in him. Luke chapter 9 verse 52 says, and he sent messengers before his face. That means he sent the, the disciples out and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Because he was heading towards Jerusalem, and he said to his uh, disciples, you know, get a place ready for me in, uh, in, in Samaria. And they said, you're going to Jerusalem? No, we don't want to know anything with you. Or we, don't, we don't want you here. In verse 54, it says, And when his disciples, uh, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Wow, look at that. You know, they're not accepting us, Lord. Do you want us to call down fire? 
In verse 55, he says, but he turned and rebuked them. He told them off and said, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus demonstrated the mercy of God. The disciples struggle with that concept sometimes, and so do we. And we need to be fully aware of the type of mercy that God wants us to demonstrate. That's why Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to be merciful as your Father also is merciful. He, he gives mercy and shows mercy to the good, the bad, the thankful, the unthankful. But let me give you a bit of an insight into the old nature that we have, the, the, the flesh, as the Bible calls it. You know, when someone has hurt you or done something wrong toward you, the flesh will naturally show an emotion towards it. And the first thing your flesh will tempt you to do is to now take that person, disregard everything else they've ever done, and now put them in a position where the only thing that they are identified with in your mind and in your heart is that thing they've done toward you just now. This is what most people do to other people. Someone's done something bad to you, bang. Regardless of what history you might have, that is now how I'm going to look at you. The wrong becomes so big, so important, and the emotion attached to it so strong that that person is, no, is, is now a caricature of what they were before and is a caricature of that sin in your mind. That's how people treat each other every day. That's what the flesh leads to. Enemies are really often not enemies because they chose to be enemies of you or me, but it's because we chose for them to become our enemies. That's a human weakness that we have. That's the, what we call the fallen nature. In the face of that weakness, Jesus commands us to love our enemies, to do good to them that hate us and despitefully use us, and that we should be a lot more like God. If we call ourselves the children of God, if we truly have been born again, then we should be more like God. You see, the truth of the matter is this. The world is filled with sin and iniquity. The whole world has rebelled against God, and even though people give him lip service, they say, oh yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. I believe that he's the son of God. I believe he, all these things about him. They, or they give him lip service. They refuse to live like him. They refuse to understand. They refuse to want to know more. And the reason mainly is, is because they don't want to put their trust in him. They don't trust God. They would rather trust themselves or something that they can see. So I'd rather trust another man to tell me what God is like rather than me learning it for myself from what the Bible tells me, from his own words, from God's own words. So people would rather trust another man to tell me what God is like and for me to save me from all the, all the pain and the suffering of having to learn myself about God and having him to teach me, I would rather let someone else teach me. And let me put my eternal soul, let me put my destiny in the hands of someone else when I've got the, the map in front of me. That's the way most people are like. God is amazing in his mercy towards us though. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't treat us the same way we treat him. Yes, he, there will come a point where he has to judge sin. But that's not treating us the same way. That's judging and justice to be done. You see, to be merciful means that you don't treat the other person according to their last sin. 
in order to be merciful, you choose to love that person, to continue to want the best for that person, even though they may not even want it for you now. Even though they may hate your, hate your guts now. Being merciful means you continue to do good toward them. When you're merciful, you continue to give the other person another chance. Not a second chance, another one and another one. We should always remember that we need mercy as much as everyone else needs it. I need God's continual mercy every day. If it wasn't for God's new mercy every morning, I'd be consumed. I wonder if you think the same. We are not perfect. None of us are. Even those who have been saved are not perfect. We continue to struggle with our old nature. And even though we may have come a long way, when we still compare ourselves to the beauty and the holiness and the perfectness of God, how can any of us stand and say, oh, I'm good. I'm good enough now. None of us can. Therefore, we need to continue to show mercy. Because it's even if we were perfect, even if we ever got to the stage of being perfect, that's no excuse not to show mercy. It's an excuse to show more mercy. Because God's already perfect in showing mercy towards us. So the more perfect we become, the more mercy we should show. James tells us, for in many things we offend. In many things we offend. And if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to also bridle the whole body. Mercy does not depend on our perfectness. Mercy depends on, first of all, you know what? Showing mercy is easier to show when you've actually come to the conclusion that you're not perfect yourself and need mercy yourself. That's a good place to start because then if you thought you were perfect, you may be less inclined to show mercy to other people because you think you're above them. But being merciful is not just about pretending something didn't happen. No, 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 no. Because Jesus didn't tell the, 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 the woman caught in adultery like as if her sin didn't happen. He, didn't, he, he actually addressed the problem. You're not just happy for a person just to say, oh, you know, well, well done. You know, keep on, keep on doing what you're doing. No, no, it's wanting the best for the other person. Mercy offers a chance for hope, for growth, but it helps to nurture the growth. That's where mercy, true mercy comes from. It's a heart of love, of true love. Now, if a mother had a son, a young son, who kept kicking people as they walked by the house, she wouldn't be very wise to pretend as if it didn't happen. A, a, a good mother would rebuke the son and would say, you should not be doing that. Why? Not because of her own, uh, uh, what's it called, standing in the community, but because she doesn't want her son to be someone who becomes violent in their life. She wants him to grow, to be kind to other people, to do, to do what's right. So if the mother doesn't just let things go, pretend as if they don't, they don't uh, exist, no, no, a mother understands a son or a, or a daughter needs to grow properly. And that's what God is towards us. But that's the way we should be towards other people as well. The desire should be, even though someone has done something wrong to us, to want the best for them. And to want the best for them means that you don't just pretend as if something didn't happen. You actually might say, listen, this is what you, you might have done wrong over here. And you help them in that direction. You help them to grow over that, to overcome a weakness they may have. And it comes from love. Without love, you can't have mercy. Without love, you cannot have mercy. Because without love, and in 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Without those things, you can't have mercy. Because mercy needs endurance. It needs, you need to bear something, but you also need to believe something for the other person, that there's a hope, that you create a space for hope for them. Love always creates room for mercy. True mercy grows from a garden watered by God's mercy towards us. Why do I say that? Because if you have never experienced the mercy of God, 
you won't know what it looks like. If you've experienced the mercy of God, then you have every opportunity to be able to share that mercy with other people. Now, Jeremiah, once again, says that it is because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. There is mercy to be found in Jesus. In Jesus, we not only have a wonderful example of mercy, but we have abundant mercy available to us if we would put our trust in him. Jesus is like a reservoir of mercy that God has stored in him. And if a person comes to Christ and humbles themselves and believes and puts their trust in him and has faith in him, the Bible says that that reservoir of mercy is opened. The floodgates are opened. And it costs him dearly for that. We must never underestimate the cost of mercy. Mercy does cost. Mercy is not easy. Mercy is hard. In this world, mercy is very hard. But if we have an example before us, it's that it cost God, the Father, a huge amount to show mercy toward us. It cost him dearly. That, that hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson, crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. It, he paid it all. In order for us to be merciful to others, we need to understand what it cost him to be merciful to us. We might better appreciate what it is. But mercy will cost you. But real mercy, if you are to give it to other people, will show how much you trust in God. And why do I say that? Because if you can't take out vengeance for yourself, if you can't get justice for yourself, from someone else who's done you wrong, then where do you have left to go? The only one is God. If someone's been unmerciful to you and hateful towards you, but you could do good to them, then the, the thing what you're saying is, is that I'm going to trust God to take care of everything. My desire for that person is to do them good. So only they're going to see God change their life and bless them and for them to change and to grow and I'm going to get a blessing from that or ultimately God's going to have to bring them to judgment to be merciful is a difficult thing but you know what if you can't show mercy to others it may be an indicator of your lack of faith in God and his justice and his mercy maybe you don't want mercy for someone else Yeah, people love mercy for themselves. Everyone wants it. But who doesn't want mercy? Because we all mess up. We all sin. But the real challenge is, and this, and this phrase, and, and if you look at the, uh, the original verses, says to love mercy. Yeah, you love it for yourself? Guaranteed. I love mercy for myself. But the real question here is, do you love mercy for others? Do you love mercy for those who have hurt you? Do you really love mercy? Well, let me ask you this question. If you do, think of some people or someone who has hurt you very, very badly. Have a think of that, that person right now. Maybe someone will come to mind immediately. Someone who even hates you today, who hates you, who thinks that they're your enemy, and do this. Begin to pray for them. Begin to be kind to them. Begin to hope for God's mercy toward them. And then you'll have your answer. James tells us, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, 
Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. God wants us to love mercy, to love it, to love mercy for ourselves, but to love his mercy upon others and to love mercy to such an extent that we want to give more and more of it because we see the way God has been with us. There are plenty of people, things that people love in their lives. They love their friends. They love their families. They love their careers, money. They love themselves. They may even love food, their cars, whatever it is. People do love things. But God wants us to show that affection, that desire for mercy towards others. Why? People love things because they value them. People love things and love family and love friends because they're precious to them. And God wants you and me to love mercy to understand how precious it actually is. To love mercy means that you want to be more like Jesus, to be merciful as he is merciful. Let me close these thoughts. Have you experienced the mercy of God toward you? Do you understand what mercy truly is this morning? Have you appreciated what mercy actually costs? What it costs for God to show you mercy? If you've been born again this morning, if you call yourself a child of God and you've come to know God and you've come to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then do you love mercy enough to see it multiplied around you? Uh, can you be that conduit of mercy for people who you know? Have you experienced the mercy that comes from God? If you struggle with that, then look at some examples of that. Begin to meditate on those things. Appreciate what you have. Maybe look at your own mother, maybe the way you were brought up and how much mercy she showed towards you. And consider Jesus, the pure picture of mercy, who continued to love and love all the way to that cross, thinking of you. Let's show mercy today. Let's love mercy, as this passage says, and let's put Jesus in the right place in our lives first as our Lord and our Saviour. God bless you all. I hope you do have a lovely Mother's Day today. Once again, uh, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. I pray that uh, the Lord would bless you today and that he would keep you and that he would uh, glorify himself through you. Keep up the good work. Um, and for the rest of you, God bless you all. I pray that you would uh, not only value mothers and appreciate your mothers but you would appreciate our lord and our savior jesus christ who had great mercy for us god bless you